Welcome back to the Health Tech Vision Podcast, where we break down the health tech news every single week. And I'm pleased to say we have not used ChatGPT for our tagline this week. We are back to our original, the one minute health tech roundup. We have some great stories to talk about today, and we are joined by not one, but two very special guests. So welcome, Malone. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you so much for having me. You are most welcome. So I think without further ado, let's get into our very first story and the story that you are very much here to talk about today. So the company that you have founded, Black and Brown Skin, has launched a Chrome extension to show users health-related images from various skin tones on any health website globally. Tell us all about it. Yeah, so... This is a Chrome extension, which we launched last week. And essentially what it does is it allows you to scan any website in the world. So not only health websites, it can even be like a patient blog, for instance. And it looks for different keywords on that website. So if you're on someone's patient blog about eczema, for instance, all of the words which which say eczema will be highlighted. And when they're highlighted, you can click on it and be able to see what a picture of eczema will look like on darker skin. And this was the ideation behind this was because a lot of the time when you're looking on these websites, I was finding that people were having to go back and forth between our original website and whatever website they were viewing. And of course, when there is a point of friction, most people end up not doing it and end up still complaining that we can't find pictures of conditions on darker skin tones. So once you install the Chrome extension, it's literally on your computer forever. You don't have to worry about ever finding a health picture on darker skin as long as it's in our database. That is awesome. That is such an awesome tool that I think we all agree is very, very much needed. And I mean, it's no mean feat at the best of times, but, you know, tell us about the journey that you've been on to create that Chrome extension and where that came from. Obviously, as you said, you're looking to, you know, reduce the path of resistance and make it as easy as possible to find the imagery but tell us all about that story so the journey has like multiple segments the original journey started three years ago but the journey more specifically about the chrome extension probably started like a year ago it's something that i had used in other ways for different chrome extensions across the net Um, I remember seeing the HTML to design Figma Chrome extension. And I was thinking, well, if you can do this Chrome extension for a Figma website, surely you can do this for our website. Um, But I hadn't actually connected the dots all all together then. So I carried on kind of just going through the web. And one thing about me, I always try to take ideas from like alternative industries and see how I can apply them to the stuff that I'm doing. So one of the things that I started to do was to just write ideas down on a random sheet. So on my notes app on my phone, I have like a sheet of like 200 different ideas. And then anytime I'm feeling like I don't know what I'm doing, I just go back to that sheet and all of a sudden the dots start connecting. And then the building of the extension part was relatively simple. That was literally speak to, I've I've got a friend who's a developer So I worked with him, speak to him. He was like, this is like so simple. I think from the point where we started and I spoke to him to the point where we had version one, it was probably like seven days. 
And I'm a big believer in shipping things fast. And yeah, in seven days, we had something that worked, but it only worked for one condition. And then slowly but surely, we kept on adding conditions, which took us maybe like a month to do. And then we launched it last week. Wow. Incredible. And are there any, um, are there any conditions that it, it's not yet covering or is it starting to like be basically comprehensive? So there is some conditions that it doesn't cover. And the reason why it doesn't cover those conditions is because we don't have images of those conditions in our database. So one of the conditions that I got asked about yesterday was hand, foot and mouth disease um, in children. And this is something that we don't have pictures of at the moment. But in the future, what we want to do is we want to incorporate a way for people to then add to the database from the Chrome extension. So like if you come across a word or a condition where we don't have a picture, there's a way for you to actually add that picture into the database. But yeah, I would say I'm still thinking about the actual, like the the product design around that to make it as frictionless as possible. Yeah, that's quality, man. So like the question I've got is black and brown skin, I the company that you've got that this has been built under the kind of umbrella of, is is this a commercial enterprise for you? So is this something that you're looking to make revenue from and then use that to do other things? And how are you thinking about, I guess, this Chrome extension broadly in terms of the, the commercials? But also, you said you got 200 ideas. That's pretty exciting. And this is obviously the first of many. How does this fit together or not with the next thing and the next thing and the next thing what have you got in the pipeline yeah um so yeah that's a good question i think for me the original like idea behind black and brown skin was for black and brown skin to kind of be like an umbrella company and under that there is loads of different products and tools that we launch but all of them are centered to improving healthcare for black and brown people and i've tried to do this throughout my journey but I would still say like probably most people building stuff, it's a it's a game of trial and error. So one of the things that I wanted to focus on was like media and media in the form of our podcast and media in the form of Mind the Gap, the book, and then focus on tech products, which would have came in our website, one of our websites called Hitano. And this was a social community which allowed people to discuss skin health conditions. And then my grand vision was to have like loads of different things in a circle and all the way down to like a physical clinic and all of those different entities and products just cater to one mission. With regards to commercials for the Chrome extension, again, this is something that I'm still working out, but the reason why we made the Chrome extension publicly available is because we wanted everyone to be able to use it and see the value in it. With regards to commercialization, what we then wanted to do is limit the amount of websites that it can be used on and then make said company pay for access to our Chrome extension for their users. So if we take, for example, CVS in America, if we work with CVS and they essentially can get all of their conditions on their websites will have pictures of darker skin automatically from them subscribing to our Chrome extension. And the only thing that they have to do on their end is have a prompt somewhere on their website to get their users to download the extension. That's currently the way we're thinking of commercialization. But again, it's something that is literally chopping and changing every single week. So if you speak to me next week, 
I might have figured out a more efficient strategy or a less efficient strategy to commercialization. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's a beautiful model, man. Like it just creates a wonderful incentive. Well, for those people to be able to just have the right imagery for more people, therefore increasing their traffic and market and all the other things. It's, it, I just think it's wonderful, man. Like I followed you since mind the gap and like, I, I've talked about it in quite a lot of talks that I've done and things that I still cannot believe in the year 2023 that you need to create a company that does this. It's, it's a strange thing for me. And obviously it's an emotive one. I've been on your podcast and we've chatted about it, um, about this stuff that like, obviously with my heritage and things, it's, it, it, it cuts me deep some of this stuff, you know, but, um, yeah, I love, I love what you're doing, man. I absolutely adore all of these things. And I think, yeah, uh, all power to you and all success to you, man. I think it's awesome. Thank you so much. I think it's it comes with its challenges, but it's one thing that I've already seen that the demand is there on the patient side. I think the biggest challenge has always been how to create that kind of triangle of, with I think we've met demand on the patient side, how can we still deliver value to other stakeholders like payers and your CVSs and everybody else in that ecosystem and then complete the loop back to patients. And that's probably the, the biggest challenge in this space. It's also worth mentioning here that am I right in thinking you're also a med student? Yeah, so it feels like I've been at med school for like forever now. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe, but this is you know, incredible that you're doing, you have, you have such a clear clear vision for what it is that you want to achieve with black and brown skin and and how all of those pieces map together even down to you know physical clinics um and you know all of these maybe there's lots of those 200 ideas that also fit into that but how they all work together and really push the needle and drive forward towards achieving that vision i think that's such a phenomenal thing to have sight of as a med student and doing all of these different things, it's really easy, I think, to have lots of ideas that can be quite disparate and they don't really kind of fit together and get, get getting easily distracted and that kind of thing. But I think what really has come across to me is how, like, the clarity that you have on that and the strategy behind what it is that you're doing. And I think, as I said, you're still so early in your career. There's so much opportunity for this stuff to have so much potential and for you to be right at the you know forefront driving it forward. So I think it's just really, really incredible and testament to, you know, your genuinely very innovative approach to tackling what is, as James says, quite an obvious problem that is shocking that we're having to solve. So yeah, massive kudos. Thank you so much. I think it's, yeah, I, I just think about, these things like all the time and to me it's just how my mind works so even in my downtime I would just be randomly coming up with like strategies and ideas and ways that we can implement them going forward and I think probably the biggest thing for me is I just know that I'm capable of doing it and I think it will be a massive disservice to the skill set that I've got to not go and do it so every day is just about trying to be one percent better just to confirm that thing in my head that I know I'm capable of doing this well outside of your head take it from us you definitely are capable of doing it it's that is very <laughs> very very clear to see thank you awesome all right shall we move on to our next story team
So our second story comes to us from The Verge. And Victoria Song says there is a disconnect between health tech and the people it is supposed to help. Now, it sounds like this is very much focused on the wearable markers, the wearable market, the Apple Watches, the Garmin's, the Fitbits that we have talked about a lot, I think, on this podcast in uh, episodes gone by. And the gap between the potential benefits for health outcomes, but actually the access to some of this technology for those who it could have the greatest impact for. I haven't read this story, but this is actually online with a TikTok video that I was going to make today. Yeah, I think the the video essentially is how, like, I think just analyzing a lot of the health tech space, I think a lot of health tech companies and even people just interested in health tech are just kind of repeating what has already worked in the healthcare system that we know from a like a bricks and mortar perspective. And I think a lot of healthcare, I'm a big believer that healthcare works for 80% of the population, like healthcare as we know it today. And there is always going to be a 20% of the population who is underserved and not essentially being, their healthcare needs are not being met. And I think when we then transition into the health tech space, we're seeing the same thing happening again. And I think this is happening again because that's where the money is. So there is not a lot of money in targeting the underserved 20%, but there is a lot more money in targeting the 80% who healthcare is kind of already working for them. And if we put some technology onto it, we take like a 10% gain to maybe like a 15% gain. Healthcare doesn't target the the 20% which are underserved in like bricks and mortar healthcare perspective. And from a health tech perspective, again, we're not targeting that 20% which are underserved. And again, this is the main reason behind this, in my opinion, is due to money. Like nobody wants to put money into figuring out if we target the underserved communities, will this work? Whereas if we target what we know is already working, we can, if we're looking from an investor's perspective, we can almost be sure of a particular return. Whereas if we target people who have never come to hospital, we don't even know what we're going to get out. So Yeah, so I think that's absolutely true. Uh, I think, I mean, we see this in the core 20 plus 5 framework that the NHS have, that there is 20% of the population that is just underserved by healthcare. And then you look at sort of wearables and, and digital tech, and it's the, the, the real big developments in the consumer health space are all being put out by large companies doing high-tech with a high-tech vision that make it unaffordable and you know things like um the verge article touches on it but yeah the atrial fibrillation on your wrist device when you know when apple puts that in then that's a really useful solution it's designed with a consumer health audience with money to blow and that's not you know that's very very much separate from the core 20 plus 5 group which could really benefit from that kind of um, technology so i think for me, the question is, how do we make sure that we're designing tech that f- focuses on that man and bring the money in to pay for it? And something clearly with the NHS's tech budget falling below a billion in the last year, you know, it doesn't feel like it's on the agenda this year or next. So, so I guess, where's what's the solution? Yeah, and I don't know what the solution is. The, concern, the more concerning thing for me is that I've made the argument before that you have to start somewhere. And 
the types of things that are being talked about here, the types of devices, they mention Apple Watches. We're talking about consumer devices, consumer health tech devices that people can buy, put on themselves and either optimize their health or prevent certain things. Take the Apple Watch and atrial fibrillation, for example, an irregular heart rhythm that can be picked up by an Apple Watch or quite a lot of the other uh, other types of watch are available, etc. Um, but the point is, that is a consumer device. And they mentioned in this article that households that have got an income over 75k are way more likely to have those uh, devices and therefore have those things picked up and those that are under 30 uh, 30k annually um, the drops to 12% in those households and so I've made this argument before of like we have to start somewhere and actually if we can get the people that can afford it then at least it starts paving the way I'm just not convinced it's paving the way I'm not convinced that costs are dropping enough to facilitate this amongst everybody. And it's not just cost. They talk in this article about lower education and lower income contributing to lower health and tech literacy overall. It's a multifactorial problem that isn't just, oh, let's just drop the cost of the devices. It's that really there isn't the the well it's there the, there isn't the drive there isn't the literacy there isn't the education it, it, it's it's all of these different things that are contributing and over time it seems that the the middle classes are running away with these devices and the benefits that they can have and what this article is talking about and it mentions a few studies that back this up quite a few studies in fact that back this up the gap is increasing and that is what worries me. And it's like, what are we doing as a health system? Are we just allowing for consumer devices to come in, be purchased by those that can afford them and just accepting, well, hey, that's benefiting everyone overall. It's certainly benefiting those that buy it. And hey, it's benefiting overall because in a public sector health system, we're dropping the amount of costs that we're spending because those people are getting served and those people are getting optimized and those people are okay. That allows us to help the people that can't afford those things. It's like, well, okay that is a benefit but are we are we stopping there are we okay with that i don't know and it seems like the answer is no and they even link an article in here a 2021 that's not that long ago it's a couple of years but a meta-analysis that found that across the board health apps and wearables improved the health for the rich and were ineffective for those of lower socioeconomic status i don't know we've as i say we've had a heated debate on on this podcast before about are we just building technology for the rich? And I've argued, no, it has to start somewhere. But I, I don't know, This is start, it started to make me feel a little bit more uncomfortable, quite significantly more uncomfortable, actually. Um, that I, I wonder if this multifactorial problem needs addressing in a more specific way. Because yes, the, the divide is increasing. Um, perhaps it's that we need to build better business models for public sector organizations to facilitate and uh, subsidized devices like this whether it's something more than that i don't know but an uncomfortable article for me to read based on what i've argued previously my take on this is that the discussion you're referring to james was uh, when whoop came out and said that they had a new digital biomarker for um, pregnant women to 
detect, I can't remember exactly what the biomarker was, but it was related to the like healthy pregnancy. Now we know that black women experience poorer maternity and um, postpartum outcomes than white women. And my argument was why, like, this is great, but actually how is it solving that problem, which is by far the greatest challenge in maternity care. And I think that part of the difficulty is, as you've said, these technologies are consumer focused and health services. I think there's a a policy, a policy piece that's really missing here because they're too expensive for health services to be able to purchase. And therefore, the commercial entities are not interested in selling to health services because they can't they can't create profit and generate revenue like we see how hard it is let's talk from the uk for a moment we see how hard it is to get into the health service and so i think in many ways it's disregarded by these manufacturers and these developers because it's not seen as a legitimate commercial route to selling their technology so i think that that there has to be big questions asked at a policy perspective. If we think that there is a legitimate way that we can use these technologies in the healthcare system, there's clearly a space for it. And as you say, the gap is widening. But there's no policy in place to attract those manufacturers into a health system space so that the people that could benefit from it can use it. And I appreciate that that requires a huge, huge shift. And it almost seems like an impossible task. But I think for me, that's one of the really obvious challenges is that there's no financial incentive for manufacturers to bring the technology in to those spaces. I think the other lens to this, which is probably the opposite way around, is that I think a lot of people would say that healthcare is something that they care about if they were to ask if they were asked to list it and i think when we look at like consumer consumer health tools i think it always goes back to the fact that all of these consumer health tools even if they tell you you have atrial fibrillation for instance you still have to engage with healthcare from a physical front so like a hospital or a gp practice but what is it worth if you have all these people that already don't trust the healthcare system or don't receive good care you give them this tool that tells them that they've got all of these health warnings. I wonder, would they feel more inclined to still go and attend to the hospital or the GP practice with already the levels of mistrust or maybe feeling like they, that their needs are not met and whether or not that we actually just need to solve the problem in the physical healthcare setting first and then all of these things people will naturally want to come back because they know they can get a good service. It's a great point. By and large, we just know this problem needs solving. So if someone could do that, that would be awesome. So I mentioned at the top of the episode, we were going to be joined by two special guests today. And our second guest has arrived. So welcome to Martin from Dockler. How are you doing today? Thank you. I'm very well, Jessica, and it's a great pleasure to talk to you. I'm privileged, and thank you so much for having me. You are most welcome. So the reason we have invited you today is because we really want to hear all about your news for this week. So Dockler has acquired Open Telehealth. So give us the lowdown. 
where did that come from? Why open telehealth? And what's the goal? Okay, great. Well, uh, we're very excited about this. Uh, we've worked with Open Telehealth for several years. It's a close, very close partnership with great engineers and a great team. They do the back end of our service, of our virtual ward service. And over the years, it's been evident that we would like to, to be faster in implementing requests from our customers. And therefore, as a natural next step, it's for us to, to acquire them because we, you know, we work really close together and now we can do things in tandem. We can be quicker to respond to our clients' requests. So, so that's the, you know, the, the rationale behind it, the primary rationale. And on top of that, OTH is already present in several European countries. Uh, so through them, we now have access to, to those clients and we hope to develop uh, what is initially a standalone platform for collecting vital signs from patients into a virtual hospital. So it's, it will allow us to quicker enter several European markets. Well, it sounds like there are big things in store, especially at a time where virtual wards seem to be hitting the headlines on the daily, especially as we talk about moving from, as Pigeon so eloquently puts it, moving from the summer crisis into the winter crisis. Um, so, yeah, like talk to us a little bit more about just how important some of these technologies that Dockler is using um, to create these virtual hospitals and virtual care are for tackling some of the challenges that we're seeing right across health systems globally, but particularly, obviously, that we're seeing in the headlines over here in the UK with the NHS. Sure. I mean, I'd like to share the, you know, we, we come from a very patient-centric background, almost by definition. I suffered a heart attack at an early stage. And one of the insights from that experience is that when you're in a hospital setting, you're being constantly monitored, right? And the minute you leave, there's nothing. So from a patient perspective, you feel vulnerable. And it's hard to understand why when we have all this technology literally on our hand wrist, right? And if you walk into any physical car, it will have all these sensors that is used when, when, to, to make the vehicle drive, right? And we don't have that in healthcare. So I think the, fundamentally, that's what we're trying to solve, right? To, to make sure that patients can be looked after in a secure setting of their home rather than taking up space in, 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 a, in a physical hospital. And I think the, you know, this is, even though healthcare systems are different across, I mean, the, the reimbursement models are different, the operators are different and so on. Fundamentally, the issue of provide, being able to provide care when you're at home is something that is finally uh, taking off. And we've seen that not the least through all these public tenders that have popped up across Europe. Martin, I've got, I've got a question for you, which is, can you explain to us, and forgive my ignorance here, how does it work from a, I guess, almost like a, a model perspective in terms of, you mentioned that you're a, a virtual ward, a virtual hospital almost. Do you act as the healthcare provider like a trust would in terms of who pays you to then deliver these sort of virtual services? And at a very, very, very practical level, what does that service actually look like? Sure. So first of all, we 
we follow our customers dictate what they want, right? We are completely device agnostic. So we'll pick any devices that is that is uh, that we think is most is is most fit for 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 each patient pathway, and and equally the patient groups again are dictated by our by our customers. So so for example, if uh, say that a, a trust may sub, may struggle because they have too many COPD patients, we'll look after COPD patient patients and looking after them means anything from providing uh, software to providing devices and device management to providing logistics to making sure that patients are compliant to on the other the, the, the extreme being a healthcare provider and looking after the patient using our own our own clinicians and some of our some of for example some of our NHS trusts they they don't need our clinical capacity. They have enough clinical capacity by themselves, right? But others struggle, and then they can they can use us as as an additional resource resource to to support them. It, it could be out of hours. It could be for for certain uh, pathways, or it could be for certain periods periods of the year. And we our our business model, if you wish, were is very simple. We we charge uh, on a monthly capacity a monthly capacity fee depending on how many patients there are which their level of acuity and so on and then we charge a per patient monitor day fee that's usually what these uh, contracts converge into of course it will depend on the each uh, each tender individual tender but that's usually what they tend to convert to. nice totally understood so, uh, the, the only other thing i wanted to mention was like i think it's the the acquisition is really interesting because it's like we deal with a lot of, we know a lot of early stage startups and that's sort of the world that I've come from in terms of like accelerators and that side of the world. And, and at the very earliest stage of like setting with co-founders and I know Malone in terms of like a network you've got and, and founders that you will know, they might be going through this, this similar thing of like, do we build something in house? Do I get a technical co-founder or do I outsource the build of the tech, right? I think what's really interesting is the acquisition you've just made is almost the embodiment of that philosophy, but but later on at like bigger company stage of like, hey, the benefits are the same. We can go faster. We can make the decisions internally. We can do all this thing, these things at much more agility, much more speed if the tech is in-house. It's just interesting to me that that problem is experienced in almost exactly the same way with exactly the same benefits at the very earliest stage of two people starting a company to the stage where you're in 12 different countries. I find that fascinating. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. I couldn't agree more. It, it is a trade-off. You know, how much do you do in-house and, how, and what can you outsource? Our approach to this has been to be very, very customer-centric. So in a, in a word, to be as agile, and I know it sounds jargony, but to be as agile and as quick to adapt to their to their requests so we've been very much on the forefront of that and whenever we get a request from from our from our client we we, we try to be quick in implementing it so it's it's really it's almost having our our customer or our business development team if you wish they tell us what what, what they want and then we we implement it and we've gone from being it's almost separate companies within one company we have this these wonderful wonderful tech colleagues we have wonderful operations colleagues making sure that patients are compliant and doing all the logistics and all that headache that we've managed to task shift from our customers because we found that was a big stumbling block 
And then we have a, a, a clinical team that is also wonderful and they can look after patients, you know, outside a hospital setting. Awesome. Well, congratulations again on your incredible news and your new acquisition. We're really excited to see what comes over the next few months and years and how you continue to do everything that you're doing across virtual wards. As I said, it's such an important time where virtual wards really are hitting the headlines. But thank you for coming to chat to us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jessica and Jess. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. So our final story today comes to us from Fierce Healthcare and Heather Landy. Now, it really wouldn't be an episode of the Health Tech Vision podcast if we didn't talk about generative AI in some capacity. And this headline reads, Epic taps Microsoft to accelerate generative AI-powered co-pilot tools to help save clinicians time. James, this is one of your favorite topics what's going on it is one of my favorite topics i'm sort of rubbing my hands in delight here because well there's uh, i'm of the opinion that multiple things can be true at the same time and one of the things that is true of how i feel about technology and healthcare one of the things is that it needs to be very considered it needs to be regulated it needs to be considerate of the environments that it's going into but also true at the same time. It's something that you mentioned, Malone, at the start, your belief in shipping things early, your belief in being innovative, entrepreneurial, and dare I say the word disruptive. Of course, I don't mean moving fast and breaking patients, but what I mean by that is the positives that can come from disruption. And like the two things can be true at the same time. And, and I definitely feel excitement of both of those. So when I read an article that talks about dozens of innovations that Microsoft built on their OpenAI system that they've bought, et cetera, the Azure OpenAI service, Epic and Generative AI, all of this stuff is incredibly exciting to me, but it's also incredibly well, not incredibly, but slightly frightening to me of like, oh God, <laughs> this stuff needs to be considered. But as I say, the side of me that likes disruption, the side of me that knows uh, and has seen in the early days of Babylon, everything have to move around them. And I'm not saying that's positive or negative. It can definitely be both. That side of me is quite excited about this stuff. I've got nothing specific to say on this article per se. I think it's nice that they're talking about lots of different innovations uh, using generative AI that can and should and could co-pilot with clinicians to help save them time. I like that that's the focus. Uh, there's obviously a long way to go, but we're seeing every single week progress being made along these lines, and it excites me. I'm biased because I was a clinician, and my one of my biggest frustrations was spreading myself too thin. I hated documenting literally everything to the nth degree, so this would have taken away, uh, or at least the direction of travel here, is that I would be excited as a clinician that perhaps my problems and frustrations would be solved. Uh, notwithstanding the, and I'm quoting, thorny cybersecurity issues with generative AI, that being just one of the many issues with AI, dare I mention hallucination and other words that are frightening when you think about it in healthcare. But um, I don't know, Malone, you're a medical student at a time where all this stuff is uh, 
are coming through. How, how do you view this stuff in terms of like how this might change your job or excitement for your job or any of the above? I'm interested in how you think about this stuff. Yeah, I think I always look at this generative AI stuff as like probably like 50% of the day as a student is just watching doctors do some form of admin. So from a student perspective, I mean, generative AI is probably in my best interest because maybe the doctors would have more time to do stuff with us. Um, the other thing I think about this generative AI, but I've never really seen many people talking about it, is I think that sometimes there is a lot of friction in the healthcare space, especially from an American perspective, with things such as like insurance documents and billing documents being super hard to read because in the process of it being super hard to read, people get billed even more. The ethics of that are like very questionable. And then I think when you throw generative AI into the mix to kind of improve that problem, I wonder how insurers will take that, like, because ultimately it gets rid of the friction, which I think they're creating on purpose and whether or not this changes like their revenue models and how they make money. So I don't know, have, do any of you guys have thoughts on that? But I think what's really clear and I think what worries me a little bit about it generally is that questions on the cybersecurity, on the data protection, on the patient data point are so often breezed past. I think there's absolutely, Malone, as you said, just just making things better, making things more efficient. And I think it is interesting what you said about sort of how much of your day is spent watching someone do admin. Um, and I think it, it does sort of beg the question, could you do a medical degree faster if you were just, you know, you spent your day watching doctors be doctors rather than doctors be administrators? Could we end a workforce problem in in 200% you know, quicker if not only doctors were spending less time doing admin, but med students were spending more time watching doctors doing doctor things? There's still concerns for me just in terms of, you know, how soon we can make any of this happen. And that's that's the real question is, will it be in the next year, in the next two, or are we looking 10 years out before any of this really comes to fruition? I feel like we're probably still 10 years out, not because the technology is not going to work, but because of the rate of adoption. I think in the technology working, from a point of view, if we like remove all of like confidentiality and patient data, but just from a hard can and generative AI model, for instance, summarize patient data from their vitals charts. I think from the things that I've seen AI already doing, that doesn't sound like rocket science. However, from a point of, can we get a hospital to adopt this technology and use it extensively? I think we're a long way away from that. And to your point on the insurer piece, are there technologies that could help fix some of those problems, you know, bringing the data in from across um, across different systems, structuring it for insurers that, that don't rely on generative AI that could solve the problem far sooner. And by the time a generative AI is ready, is it perhaps redundant? Yeah. And I mean, with all of these things, I think, I think sometimes the friction that we see in healthcare, in my opinion, is friction by design. Um, and I think AI basically gets rid of all of that friction by design. And I'm, I'm, I'm just super interested to see what points can AI get rid of this friction by design and what it looks like on the other side. Because 
there is no reason why, for instance, an insurance claim should be so difficult for a patient or even just something like accessing your patient notes um, as a patient should be so difficult. And generative AI means like patients and other people in, in the health space will be able to get this information with relatively little admin that's needed to be done on the physician side. And I will just close by saying that for many of us, the only thing more tedious than admin is watching someone do admin. So, Malona, I really feel for you. But hang in there. It's not going to be forever. Yeah, See, seen enough, seen enough. Thank you so much, Malone, for joining us today. It has been a great conversation. Thoroughly enjoyed it. And if people would like to connect with you and find out more about what you're up to at Black and Brown Skin, where can they find you? Um, so you can find me on Twitter, which is Malone underscore MK, my personal website, which is MaloneMcQuendy.com or Instagram, which is Malone underscore 187. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm sure there will be many of us that will see you there. But thank you so much again for joining us. And to everybody else, we will see you next week. <laughs>